Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of Assessment Works, our podcast about assessment in higher ed through AALHE. In this episode, we'll be talking with guests Gina Polychronopoulos and Emily Kalkus-Liederman about the RARE model, a framework for nurturing collaborative relationships and assessment practice. They recently wrote an article about applying the RARE model in a remote environment for intersection. We'll put a link in the episode notes. We're really excited to speak with Gina and Emily, and we hope that they'll be presenting this model at AALHE 2021. At this point in our episode is where we could be announcing a sponsor, but we don't have any yet. So if you're a sponsor, then please feel reach out to us at podcast at AALHE.org for consideration. We'll also spotlight some cool things we've been learning about lately and go over some upcoming assessment events. So welcome and enjoy the episode. episode, Andre and I are going to highlight a cool thing we found interesting or helpful lately. Andre, why don't you go first? All right, I'll share two things. One thing about uh, just typical eye health, eye care health, and another thing about higher education. So the one thing I notice, I'm staring at screens all day, every day, multiple screens. It creates a lot of tension around my eyes. It's probably creating tension around your eyes if you're looking at screens all day. Uh, I'm not sure if humans were adapted to this. We probably weren't. And so one thing that's been really helpful is this app called Flux, and it automatically dims your screen later in the evening so that you can be better prepared to rest when you go to sleep. It's free. The website is just get flux, and that's F-L-U-X.com. So check it out related to higher education. This is a book I recommend. It's called A Perfect Mess. It's by a Stanford faculty named David Larrabee, and he looks at the history and evolution of U.S. higher education system. Accreditation is one of the big components of the system, and that influences the work that we do as assessment practitioners. He looks at some of the unique things about our system of higher education, such as we've produced 40% of the Nobel laureates between 1901 and 2013, and he argues that the some of the beauty of the American system of ed- education is that it's so anarchic. And he asks, why should we ruin a perfect mess? So I recommend checking this out. It's great. It's from, um, I can't remember which press, but we'll put a link to where you can get the, get the book in the show notes. It's a really cool question to ask too, why ruin a perfect mess? So I've been digging into the Data Visualization Sketchbook by Stephanie Evergreen. Um, I followed her blog on data visualization for a long time, and I'm excited to try out the sketchbook in creating reports and presentations. It's basically a really huge graphic organizer that walks you through different stages of creating clear and cohesive visuals from your projects. And it includes tips on which charts to choose for your data and how to turn those into reports, slides, and one-page handouts. It's also got tips for finding color palettes and other design elements, and it just really encourages you to experiment and play around with your design in a way that that is, I think, fun and a little lighthearted, but also will produce really good results. So we'll link to the book and to Stephanie's blog in the show notes. 
Dr. Gina Polychronopoulos is the Assistant Director of Assessment at Christopher Newport University. She has also served as an external program evaluator for several K-12 public school districts and as a clinical mental health researcher in the private sector. Gina has a background in counselor education and supervision, experimental psychology, mental health counseling, and school counseling. She's the associate editor of the Journal of Research and Practice in Assessment and sits on the board of Virginia Assessment Group. Dr. Emily Klukas Liederman is founder of Klukas Liederman Consulting for Assessment and Accreditation and an adjunct instructor of positive psychology at Boston College. She has previously held posts in assessment at Santa Clara University and American Jewish University. Emily's work advances learning through assessment, educational development, evaluation, and data-guided planning for colleges, schools, and nonprofit organizations. Gina and Emily have collaborated for a number of years on some exciting assessment projects, including their latest article, Let's Connect, Maintaining and Strengthening Collaborative Relationships in a Remote Environment, published in AALHE's journal, Intersection. We're really excited to talk to them today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. How are you holding up during during coronavirus and quarantine and remote learning and everything? Well, <laughs> what day is it again? I mean, that pause says it all. Exactly. <laughs> it feels like the same day, like after, like Groundhog Day, one day after another, after another. Every day feels, I forget what day it is. Totally. I was just saying my sense of time is just really off. Yeah, it's been it's been an adventure. It sure has. <laughs> it is like Groundhog's Day. Super weird. But I'm glad you're here. And it seems like you're healthy. We are. Thank you. Yeah, so grateful for that. Very grateful for that. Doing our doing our best to stay motivated, taking care of ourselves, keep mm-hmm. our energy level up as much as possible. Uh, now the winter's coming, so even more important now than ever. Aaron and I have about six months of gray skies ahead of us living in the Northeast, which I'm fine. I love the four seasons, so I'm not complaining. Yeah. Yeah. I recently returned to New England, so I'm I'm back. I'm in Springfield, Massachusetts now. And Yes, I'm mentally preparing <laughs> for the long, the long stretch of cold to come. Well, hopefully our talk today will have some strategies for assessment practitioners as we're working through these weird and uncertain and, and disorienting times. So Andre, you're up with the first question. All right. So one of the projects you've published quite a bit about is the rare model for fostering relationships and doing assessment work. We'll link to your full articles in the show notes about the rare model, but could you start us off with a brief overview of what this model is all about and how it might be beneficial? Sure. Thank you for the question. Uh, So Gina and I developed the rare model. It's been, what, Gina, two, three years ago? Yeah, I think about three years ago. (laughs) Almost three years ago now. And um, it really came out of our discussion about collaborating with assessment partners and how we actually do that. And so Gina and I both have a shared background in counseling. And what we noticed through our discussions was that we had a lot of similar ways about thinking about our approach to collaborating with assessment partners in order to really enhance collaborative relationships, knowing that collaborative relationships is a big part of 
building a positive assessment culture at institutions that we work at. And so what we did was we really kind of unpacked some of the counseling theories that inform our work. And so a lot of it comes from positive psychology, solution-focused counseling, motivational interviewing. And so the acronym RARE stands for RELATE, which is, again, kind of the emphasis on building relationships and joining with our assessment partners. Um, Acknowledge is really understanding their experience in the assessment process, what obstacles are getting in the way, and kind of building that empathy to understanding that. Reflect is to help them identify the choices that they have in the assessment process. And then empower or empowering context is to really help them understand like ways to move towards action in assessment. Try to stay away from the phrase closing the loop because it just seems kind of muddy to some (laughs) folks, but that's really kind of what we're getting at with, with the last piece. But yeah, it's been really a pleasure to, for Gina and I to collaborate on this. And um, we've had a lot of fun writing, writing the articles and, you know, really just kind of examining why we do things the way that we do and, and what informs that work and particularly our disciplinary backgrounds and, and how that plays a role. So we mentioned at the top of the interview that the two of you recently published an article in ALHE's special COVID edition of Intersection about some of the strategies from the RARE model and how they might be especially important during our experience during the coronavirus pandemic. I was particularly struck by your section about being conveners and using different (laughs) strategies than usual to to bring people together. What what are some of the tools or strategies that you found helpful in convening discussions about assessment in these weird times that we're going through? We had a whole thing about being a convener and we just went back and forth about it. I didn't know what convener meant until <laughs> Emily taught me what that was. I was like, what is that? Yeah. Um, okay. and she, she told me and explained it to me and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm kind of nerding out a bit because it's the word convene is from a leadership perspective, something that I'm actually really passionate about because it focuses on engaging people and like bringing the right people to the table. And so that's kind of why I was so um, stubborn, I'll say, (laughs) because we were going back and forth of like, oh, well, is it curating resources? No, it's, this is about how do we know, do we have the right people in the room? And if they're not there, how can we get them there? And so really it's about, you know, again, kind of going back to the rare model, using some of these motivational strategies particularly during COVID, meeting folks where they're at, reminding them about, you know, what resources do they have to work with? If they're not familiar with the resources, how can we kind of orient them to what they do have? And really trying to reframe the goal of assessment, because I think sometimes, you know, especially right now, faculty and staff, they have so much on their plate, and they're just trying to keep their head above water, Um, most of the time. So we don't want to make them feel like assessment is another another add-on, but really how can we help make assessment work for them and really emphasize that, you know, we're all here to focus on student learning. And so how can we really make this a smarter and, and simpler process for them? Gina, do you want to add? 
yeah, we were going back and forth about the being a convener thing. And when Emily explained to me what it, what it was that it actually meant, I said, yeah, you're right. That is super important. And so um, for me, it's, it's about being sensitive, you know, like when we talked about um, in the article, we talked about taking consideration about their already depleted energy, not another zoom meeting. I felt like when COVID started, I felt completely overwhelmed myself with all the resources that were out there. And I was appreciative of them. I definitely was. But at the same time, I didn't know where to start. <laughs> I didn't know like which resource to go to first. I didn't, I didn't have the time to sort through, through them all. It's just trying to, to stay afloat myself. And so knowing that and knowing that we still do need to stay connected and bring people together and participate in this, you know, in the assessment process. I tried to be mindful of that. Is this going to be just another a Zoom meeting or how can we get the most out of our time together without draining ourselves? How can I be sensitive to that? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what that part means to me. Mm-hmm. It's interesting talking about convening as bringing people to the table when during this lockdown, you know, there may not be a physical or literal table. Right. So, so finding ways to create that sense of community is mm-hmm. is even more important. And I, I think your your strategies that you line up lay out in this article are are really helpful for that. Jeannie, you were talking a little bit about, you know, Zoom fatigue and and making sure not to overwhelm people. What are what are some alternative uh, methods of engaging people that that people might consider other than, you know, just having a Zoom meeting or a Microsoft Teams meeting over and over and over again? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I've spent some time doing the the part of this that that I was trying to call curating before, right? (laughs) Um, So what that means is if it doesn't have to be a meeting, then I try my best not to make it one. I've spent a lot of time putting together resources and trying to centralize those because before I would just walk through the halls and when I wanted to meet meet with somebody, I'd just go find them, right? I'd go across campus and go find them. (laughs) I'd find their office hours and, you know, and so I would just show up. You can't do that now though. And so I would, I've been doing my best since, you know, we've been at home to put everything together, like in a very accessible way, streamline things, make little how-tos. I've sent screenshots to folks where I normally would have met with them sometimes to go through like our assessment management system together. Sometimes it's just like, you know what, they don't want to have another meeting today. So I'll set up a whole document of taking screenshots, uh, step-by-step process of how to navigate the system so that they can do it on their own time. If they're up late at night because they've had stuff to do, we don't need to set up a meeting or time is precious, right? Um, so still coming together and, and responding to them without having to like log on into a place at a specific time because our schedules are so like unpredictable and fluid and, and flexible. Um, and, and also the, the good old telephone. Um, I wasn't really a telephone person to begin with, but that's helpful on the eyes too. You know, like, I'm like, well, just call me, you know, like, let's just talk on the phone instead of having to look at the screen um, while we're doing this. That's been helpful too. So just centralizing resources, streamlining things into bite-sized digestible pieces and as much as possible, you know, just trying to be concise and um, get straight to the point. And I think, I think too, along those lines, just the flexibility piece and like asking faculty and staff what works for you and, and being open and receptive 
to that and responsive. One thing that's interesting that I think has come out of this whole pandemic and shift to virtual has been kind of a refocus on what is essential and, and what is crucial uh, in assessment, but it really in all of our practices, right? In our in our lives and what we're what we're prioritizing. And I think that that the article that you you have written kind of helps us get there. And I think you know none of us would have would have hoped for coronavirus to happen and all of all of these things. But I think that the push towards you know asynchronous communication and and remote and virtual tools for collaboration have kind of pushed us to a place of greater accessibility that that I think is going to be helpful going forward, even when we can convene at a literal table. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm you. glad you said that, Erin, um, because this, uh, this awful situation has really sparked some interesting and meaningful conversations with mm-hmm. uh, some of the faculty I've worked with, right? Just because we've had, they've had to shift, they did the great grand shift or whatever we want to call it in the spring, the pivot, the grand pivot Pivot, of 2020, right? Um, So that happened in the spring. And so they had to really say, oh gosh, I have like a month left. What do I do? Like, what is the most important thing? Like, what can I do to get this very important message to like through to my students and make sure that they learned it? What's the most important thing? And Mm. as I thought about that over the summer, I was like, this is a good assessment conversation, right? Like for the folks who are having a hard time getting through to what's the most meaningful in the assessment mm-hmm. process with them, for the folks who are who are maybe just doing a lot, maybe doing too much at once um, and not getting deep with it, this kind of was a good mental exercise for all of us to say what's meaningful, what's the most important and focus on that because that can be really hard to do. And now we've been forced to do it and found some just great insights have happened and and some interesting innovations, you know, like this has Mm. been a very, a very inspiring time. And just for me personally, like as a professional to see and witness, I'm getting chills when I'm saying this, the creativity that has flourished in this pandemic situation uh, everywhere that the, the way people have expressed and created and and flexed and molded and it's just been it, it's just been beautiful to watch um, that part of it you know yeah to see yeah. what people can do when given the space to energize themselves mm-hmm. to, to really try their skills of creativity it's been yeah. an opportunity to break down some of the structures that have been around just because it's been the way we've always done things in higher ed. And, you know, the demographic of higher education is changing a lot. The The students that were that we have today are not the same students who were in college mm-hmm. 50 years ago when some of these structures were, you know, developed and, and codified and, and put into place. And I think that these this this rebuilding of higher education into something different can be re- a really positive move forward in, in our field and in higher education in general. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Erin, because I was thinking that as Gina was talking about just, you know, all of the equity issues that we've been focusing on in assessment. And I think, you know, particularly for faculty and staff to kind of be able to share more of those conversations as some of the inequities have been highlighted and some of the, you know, disparities in education, we've really kind of, you know, shined a light on, unfortunately, some of these, but again, leading to those um, conversations that are so, so needed right now. 
Yeah, I know for AELHE, it was an opportunity this year because we had to move our conference online. And I've often heard that there are people who are frustrated that they can't really leave where they live to, to go to our conference. So it was really nice to be able to actually have that online conference where it promoted equity, more people mm-hmm. could, could participate and engage. So that was something really cool on the, on the organizational front. Yeah, it's, it really is. It, it was wonderful to be able to connect with folks that I may, may not have even met, not just because of whether I could or couldn't go, but also because I could attend and or view the sessions at a later time mm-hmm. and be in two places at once. When you can't do that, you go to the conference and you're like, oh, I have to choose between these two. And that's not fair. And um, you kind of end up sometimes going in the same like street like line of of things and you don't get to connect with the folks that maybe you wouldn't have connected with uh, mm-hmm. on other topics whereas um, when you introduce this this type of platform you can and I think that after all of this is, is set is over hopefully soon I, I really think that things are gonna shift overall I think for for the better um, as far as access to these sorts mm-hmm. of things and the way we approach professional development and mm-hmm. teaching and learning. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to see that shift of how we're going to start including more uh, mm-hmm. modalities and more people. And I think your your work really helps us keep relationships with other humans at the center of that work. I think it, it can be a trap when we shift into more asynchronous forms of collaboration that, you know, that human connection kind of gets lost. So how, how are some ways that, that you would recommend focusing on those connections and on those relationships as we shift away from maybe real-time collaboration into more asynchronous forms? That's a good question. Yeah. I think, well, just to start out, um, I think that what you're doing now with this type of, with this type Mm -hmm. of podcast is broad reaching and kind of, it helps people to feel like they're part of the conversation and these sorts of things that are just conversational, talking about important issues, but the kind of thing that you might experience, like say in a cafe on your campus, you know, Mm -hmm. with your colleagues. I feel like that really takes the intimidation aspect of this scary word of assessment out of it, right? It humanizes it. And that humanize um, aspect, that was, Emily uh, totally came up with that. She's far more eloquent than I am. Like, um, no. she, she has a way with words. <laughs> so when, when she said humanizing the assessment process for our first article, I was just like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. So yeah, you're right. It's humanizing it. It's bringing the people into the process and 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 just you feel more at ease and you let the guards down, the fear comes down and you can just have that conversation. Right. Yeah. I think, I think it is a lot about that of like taking the time to do more of the groundwork of like this impersonal and Andre, you kind of use that term of like, Oh, there's going to be like a kind of informal conversation today. And you know, that immediately said Gina and I at ease of like, Oh, okay. This is just like a coffee talk like we don't need to be yeah. scared about I've got my coffee yeah I brought my coffee too right? <laughs> Listen, you can't uh, see but all, all of us on our zooms just like yeah. raised up our coffee cups <laughs> little little cheers moment Which but yeah I think the yeah. top the top win for me with COVID is being able to drink my own coffee at home right yes it's the little thing celebrating like <laughs> yeah celebrating that joy I read read a um, blog post recently that was talking about how can we grant ourselves 
permission to experience more joy during this time and finding ways to really build that in. Um, and I know that's something, you know, Gina and I have talked a little bit about with, with self-care is how can we find happiness, even if we're trapped at home? <laughs> what can we do? And, and I think even, you know, chatting about those kinds of things with faculty and staff of like asking like, hey, how are you coping this week? Or like, what's getting you through the week? You know, really just, again, finding that personal connection. I think that goes a long way. The empathy, I, I think, is kind of underrated, but it's it's needed. You know, it's needed when people are feeling overwhelmed and no, not one more thing. No, not one more meeting. Because I think they'll remember that. Oh, wow, this person really cares. They're, they're checking in with me on a personal level. It's going to go a long way. And just making it an intention to do that too, right? Like, it's like, like Emily was saying, it's like, it's intentional, you know, building those relationships takes time. Mm -hmm. And uh, some are a little bit more hesitant than others. It takes a little bit longer to warm up. But, you know, with the folks that I've been working with for a few years, we, every conversation, every time we meet for an assessment meeting, there's always just regular talk, you know, how's life? How's your partner? How are, how are the kids? You know, mm -hmm. um, we know each other and not on a like super deep level, but we know about each other. You know, we know about what's going on in each other's lives, some personal, but a lot of professional. That's mm -hmm. something that we talked about in the article too. And that's important all the time is knowing what's happening for faculty and staff on campus, like right. being aware of what's happening. So we all do that um, mm -hmm. as assessment professionals. But I think that right now it's even more important like to, to know exactly what's going on because just that sensitivity to timing you know when can you reach people when are they bogged down we do that already as far as like when are exams when's advising when's this happening when's it happening but I read through all the faculty senate minutes you know like I'm checking in with my faculty partners that are like the people that I talk to to get more information about, mm -hmm. see what's happening, you know, with, uh, with you all, what are they telling you, you know, like, what are they asking of you so that I can partner with them, you know, like, mm -hmm. cause so, so often we feel separated, you know, as the, at the administrative part of our positions that we can kind of feel that disconnect. But mm -hmm. if you're interested in their experience um, and what's happening with them, you can join and then you can more strategically say, okay, well, now's not the right time. <laughs> um, and you know what's going on for them. And you're just going to get a lot less skepticism, a lot less of that word resistance that we all have a knee jerk reaction to. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I found that that's been even more important is knowing what's happening and, and relying on our partners to keep us in the loop so that we can be sensitive to everyone's needs. I was just going to say when Gina was talking, it also made me think about this idea of joining forces too. So I think a little bit about the faculty development work that's taking place and particularly with instructional designers and just how hard they're working right now and, you know, ways that we can continue to just join forces and not reinvent the wheel and ask faculty to do something separate, but, oh, okay, faculty development's trying to address this issue how can we work assessment into that conversation? So, so we're streamlining things. Yeah. Like integrating stuff and like working Definitely. with what's there instead of like yeah. adding on another thing. Yeah. 
Emily, you had mentioned about the importance of self-care and mm-hmm. promoting that for, for other people and for the people that we mm-hmm. work with. But I think it's just as important, you know, to, to keep that in mind for ourselves at, in, in our work, especially as these lines between the personal and the professional have been blurred a bit. So what, what are you, what are, what are your strategies for, for self-care in these times that you've been yeah. using in your own lives? Yeah, I think it's been kind of like a constant, constantly moving target and kind of readjusting throughout COVID. Um, I just recently gave birth to a baby boy about almost five weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. So my self-care routine has changed. (laughs) And now I find myself with even less time than before, because he's keeping me busy. And so I don't, I was, I'm trained yoga practitioner. And so I'm real big on like doing my yoga. And making what what kind of yoga do you day. do? Any kind of flow. Okay. Hatha, vinyasa. Yeah. Any kind of flow yoga. I'm but, just asking because I've taught, I've taught, I, I teach yoga too. Oh, cool. So. Okay. Another thing that we should add to the next conference. Yeah, totally. Have, have a little <laughs> yoga track. But yeah, I don't have time to do my, you know, routine that I really like to do like almost every day. So now it's just been focus on breathing, right? Like I, I have time to breathe. <laughs> I can breathe while I'm doing anything and just being intentional about that deep breathing. And even if I have like five, 10 minutes, uh, my top tip would be legs up the wall. If you guys have not done that before, I highly recommend it. It's transformative <laughs> and just restorative, right? So like maybe you, d- you don't have time to do something active or you're feeling really run down that's something that you can do that is just can kind of change your mood, make things seem a lot better in just a few minutes. And I think just overall checking in with myself and seeing like, how do I feel right now? And and yeah, just being intentional about that, but, but just keep breathing. That's kind of my mantra <laughs> right now. So, yeah. I love it. And anyone can do it or right? else you'd be dead. Right. Right. So. <laughs> Like what Emily said about, you know, how it's different now, right? Like she, she just had a baby. And so knowing that self-care doesn't look the same for everyone. Ever since COVID happened, my, my form of self-care has become not possible. So um, I sing uh, in the Virginia Symphony Chorus. And uh, that was my self-care. Every Tuesday night we'd have rehearsal and then we'd be working toward a performance. You know, that was, that, that was self-care to me. Every week I'd look forward to doing that. And I haven't been able to do that all year. And also I, I uh, Greek dance, you know, with, my, with the Greek community where I live and we perform and we compete and all of that. And that was my other form of self-care. So it's just like, well, we can't do those anymore. What do we do now? You know, like, what do I do now? I had to start figuring out or trying different versions of self-care that like I was just like, okay, well, I guess I can try, you know, going for a walk. I wasn't really into walks before, or, you know, I can listen to an audiobook or something. So it's just about just trying new things and having to adapt and knowing that self-care doesn't always look the same. Self-care, Emily and I are counseling professionals, you know, mm-hmm. self-care is a buzzword in our profession. We, it's been a huge buzzword in our profession, like forever. And <laughs> they're always saying, do self-care, do self-care. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you feel pressured to do self-care, you know, <laughs> like, it's like, you got to do self-care. Are you doing self-care? It's like, oh, yeah. and I found that it's hard for all of us. And sometimes mm-hmm. we get it down and we're feeling good about our routine. And then other times we have to like 
remind ourselves to do it, right? So even the helping professionals have to remind themselves to do self-care when we're telling our clients that ever since COVID started, I've started seeing clients again um, on the side to sort of help through the crisis of what was happening um, with like the frontline workers. And I'll tell you what, um, it sounds simple, but I call it back to basics. Um, And this is what I talk about with all of my clients, uh, routine, um, having like a structured routine, as boring as it is in a time like this, when time is uh, very strange, having a routine and things to look forward to um, and things that you know are predictable helps with the unpredictability of this situation. And, And then the basics aside from that are mind what you eat, mind how you move, mind how you feel, you know, like be mindful of those things, you know, not going to be nobody's perfect, but it's just like, okay, I try to take care of my body by eating healthy foods in addition to the, you know, the indulgences, but try to eat healthy, try to move my body, you know, Mm -hmm. think about how I'm feeling, be mindful of those things and know that it's a, it's a process. Take the judgment out of it. That's, those are the basics, I think, um, that are so, seem so small, but they're so powerful um, in just sort of setting that baseline foundation of um, that underlying feeling of well-being, right? Our basic needs. Yeah, I love it. I love the, I, you know, I've learned something. So it's made me think mm-hmm. about the importance of, I have a, I, I do have routines, but I don't think about it. And it's kind of funny because I teach cultural anthropology and I always talk to my students about ritual and routines. Um, So I was, yeah, that is a great strategy for navigating uncertainty. The things that I often talk about with, with my students will be like Bronislaw Malinowski was an anthropologist who like the early 1900s and he looked at magic in the Trobrian islands and he found that the people who had the more dangerous jobs and the more unpredictable incorporated magic a lot. And so a lot of those things might be like routines or or rituals that you might have in your daily day life that might make you feel more certain. So a little bit of a tangent, but it's one that I think is kind of fun. That is, that's cool. Yeah. Getting the back to basics, fresh air breaks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like just something that you don't think about, but when you're, you know, on a physical campus, like it was something that I would do a lot of like, taking a walk or like just taking a walk to like go get my lunch and sometimes when we're inside so much it's like oh wait I haven't been outside for many hours so just yeah just that little thing makes a big difference too yeah I've been fostering dogs that's been a good reminder to like go outside and get fresh air except this dog that I have right now is like really just very easy I can take him out a couple times a day he's really chill Oh, cool. what kind of dog is it? Um, it's some kind of hound mix. It's oh. some kind of really cute brindle. All right. Um, so one question I wanted to ask you before we run out of time. We've been asking people about how they came into the field of assessment. And I know this is something that everyone has their different trajectory. We recently talked to Natasha Jankowski about this. <laughs> and I know that's something you've both done a lot of work around. Would you both like to share how you came into the field of assessment? Uh, well, that's actually kind of, um, that's kind of how we connected in the first place. When uh, it was a couple years back, it was one of those times when someone had written an article criticizing assessment professionals. 
And we were all responding, well, how do you, how do you deal with this type of situation or these types of criticisms with faculty and staff on your campus? And Emily and I noticed that we had similar approaches and that they were very like counselor based, right? And so that's how we, we connected offline and talked about them. That's kind of how you know, the, the rare model was born. So we, we reflected on the fact that we're intentionally using some of those strategies. Like we're not counseling our colleagues, obviously, mm-hmm. but we're using, we're using the interpersonal strategies intentionally, right? And so that's so funny. It's like, I know it's a little tangent, but um, I, love, I love telling the story of how we met because like we connected on this listserv, mm-hmm. you know, that you all um, have. And we worked together very closely but across the country from each other. Mm-hmm. And we've never met in person, yeah. ever. We were just on the phone and on like, you know, video chat, like the entire time as we were developing this, like, mm-hmm. you know, this, this model. And so the first time we met was when we first presented the, the uh, draft of the paper at the Virginia Assessment Group Conference. <laughs> and it was like a, a reunion. We had never oh, met, but we felt yeah. like we'd known each so other forever. Fun. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's my favorite story. It's like we felt like we knew each other forever and indeed still feel that way, but like we hadn't met in person. And so it was kind of like a 20th century like <laughs> uh, example of, of uh, professional relationships and friendship. So anyways, back to the original story. So we noticed that, you know, and other other folks have put out some great research about this too, mm-hmm. about how how our backgrounds and disciplines and trainings are just so different come from all a variety of, of different areas whether it's history or um you know the social sciences uh, you know arts humanities what science hard sciences whatever they're called <laughs> like all of those things right music <laughs> as we all got all these musical um <laughs> professionals here too and so um and we're like well, we're all doing the same work and you know we're all effective in some ways and what is it that you know, connects us in our efficiency and in what strategies are helpful to us. And so I came into the field um, of higher education assessment from educational assessment in K-12 and program evaluation. Um, So I did grant program evaluations for five years um, in K-12 school districts looking at educational student uh, student support programs, social emotional programs that were intended to support students um, and looking at how they could be improved, what things could be implemented and that sort of thing. And, but before that, I was a clinical researcher, you know, I worked in clinical mental health research, looking at interventions and how effective they were, medical or, or um, behavioral interventions, therapeutic interventions. And it's like these skills they're such different settings, but they're all similar skills, right? Like what, what I guess what are called transferable skills, right? Where you um, are doing sort of the same things, but from different lenses, maybe different approaches, but you're working on the process. You're looking at the process, making sure it's sound, making sure it's supported. And it's those skills and the interpersonal ones, the most of all, that I rely upon um, in, in this field. And so that's what, when I got to higher education assessment, I'd never worked in higher education assessment, but highlighting those skills are what make me, made me successful and got me into the position I'm in. So uh, I think that we all have a story kind of like that of what specific, unique, and similar skills we have that make us effective and some of them are alike and some of them are different. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important for us. And uh, we've talked about this a lot. It's important for us to reflect, to know 
what our unique strengths are and to uh, leverage them as well, right? Um, to, to intentionally use what we're good at and, you know, just make sure that we're doing that on purpose, right? <laughs> we're all good at something different and some similar things, just use it on purpose, right? I think a lot of the transferable skills at least my transferable skills, I didn't really think about until I was actually working in the field of assessment. And then I Mm -hmm. thought about, oh, it was these skills that I developed Mm -hmm. um, teaching that helped me position to to this kind of work, or is these skills Mm -hmm. that I've used um, in other types of settings or in in the co-curricular settings, even Mm -hmm. for in my undergraduate and graduate studies, I think helped me a lot. What about you, Emily? Could you tell us a little bit about your trajectory? That's a good segue, actually, because I was thinking about both of those things in my background. So I started out after my uh, master's in rehabilitation counseling. I was a substance abuse counselor, actually, working with adolescents and then adult women. And so there's a lot of assessment in that work, actually. It's a different types of assessment um, in, you know, a counselor setting, but it's a lot of like, measuring how do we know like what level of care someone is appropriate for and things like that so that kind of started my assessment mindset and then I was lucky enough to find a position which combined I had worked um, in grad school as a graduate residential assistant so on student student affairs and programming side of things Um, so I was lucky enough to find a position in student affairs where I worked in prevention education. So it was combining a lot of the substance abuse work and student affairs work. And so did that for a few years. And again, assessment, you know, came up, we actually did quite a bit of assessment in um, student affairs and started working with Nessie a little bit became more familiar with that. And so that definitely piqued my interest. And then, you know, I learned pretty quickly, like, I want to be teaching. I love the student affairs stuff, but I'm really interested in teaching. And so went back for my um, doctorate in educational leadership in higher ed. And so that's when I started teaching. And it was actually through my doctoral research. I was lucky enough to work with the famous Peggy Mackey, who's amazing and very student focused. And, you know, through my research, through conversations with her, she really encouraged me to think about pursuing assessment as a career. And what I found in my research is that, in fact, you know, for learner-centered teaching, faculty that are really interested in doing that, assessment is a really big part. We know that now, but me as a doctoral student was like, wow, assessment, this is a new, <laughs> a new concept. And, you know, I just became so excited about it because I saw that you know, the more faculty were able to incorporate this as a part of their way of thinking about teaching, um, you know, the better the results were for students. And in fact, students rated them higher as in fact being learner centered. And so that just, you know, really kind of led me to look at this as a career. And I was lucky enough to find positions where I was still able to teach as well as you know, engage in the assessment work. And I think that's really strengthened um, my work quite a bit. And as I, you know, continue to teach now part-time, I really enjoy the work and it's, it's great to meet folks and hear, how did you end up in assessment? That's for Gina and I, that's like one of our favorite, (laughs) favorite questions at a, at a conference to chat about, like, what led you here? How did you get here? Um, Because I think the variety of responses is, is just so cool to see. 
I think that again, kind of strengthens our profession. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that one size fits all type of thing. And yeah, we definitely see that as a strength in our work for sure. You know, you mentioned these common transferable skills that that we bring to our profession kind of as a whole. And you mentioned, you know, process being important, um, the interpersonal relationships being important, this this idea of teaching as being central is being important. And I think another one that I might add to to that list might be storytelling and whatever whatever form that looks like in your programs, you know, how do we take what's important to us and how do we tell that story? And I think that that's something common across assessment professionals as well. And, you know, talking about assessment as a creative pursuit, my background is also as a musician. I started my career as a K-12 music teacher, but the creative, constructive aspects of storytelling, I think that's something about the assessment profession that, that, makes it appealing to my to me personally and I think to a lot of people also. Yeah, and I, and I think that um Erin as you were talking um it made me think that why it feels like such a good fit like when I came into this uh, profession and why it's reflected in the rare model too when we talk about like storytelling and narrative uh psychology and constructivism you know like mm-hmm. we're thinking like postmodern right and uh that creative and what are we creating knowledge we're finding meaning you know and and uh it just feels like such a good fit for for that reason but sometimes when we hear assessment, we might not have had those ideas about what it is, right? But it does involve those things. I feel like, you know, the approach to hearing people's stories is is a very inclusive and equitable approach, right? And we're appreciating the uniqueness of others and their unique strengths and also finding what brings us together and, and what, what, you know, makes us similar. Uh, honoring our unique things at the same time. And um, I think that that's where we're trying to go, right? Like with, with equity, with inclusivity is hearing our, all of our voices and honoring Mm. them. And I guess just for me personally and professionally, that's one of the aspects of assessment work that energizes me because I was a counseling professional, so that's what I came to. That's what we that's what we do. You know, we're advocates. We're, mm-hmm. We want to be inclusive. We want to hear stories of others. So, thanks so much. This has been a really invigorating conversation, and I've enjoyed speaking with you. Just in closing, we'd like to ask people what What's your favorite thing that you're working on right now? <laughs> we're working on a couple of things right now, right? Yeah, we are. <laughs> Yeah. um, Well, right now we are working on an article with a colleague of ours, um, Carrie Gokunauer in in Hawaii. And the three of us are writing an article about uh, assessment, uh, the rare model applied to general education assessment um, in group settings. And so we've been talking about how to apply these strategies in group settings for a while now. And so uh, this article is going to be a nice segue into what Emily will probably talk about is the uh, book proposal we've got going on. We're really, really excited about, about both of these things. I'm particularly excited about the book. This is something that Gina and I have been talking about, thinking about for a while, and it just seems like the time is right. So we're in the stages of writing a proposal right now and you know, thinking about how the rare model can be applied and how it's most useful for those new to the assessment field, um, for professionals that have been doing this work for a while. And then also thinking about, you know, how do we effectively partner with administrators to, to get the resources that we need? How can 
rare model strategies be applied for those kinds of conversations. So those are just a few little teasers um, for what's to come, but we're, we're really thrilled and um, excited to kind of share that with you that we will be writing a book. Well, I will definitely be adding that to my bookshelf when it comes out. <laughs> I, I look forward to, to reading that when it's available. Well, thanks. We're excited about it. We finally, like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We've been talking about it and writing about what chapters we want to include. And finally, mm-hmm. we're just going to do it. <laughs> just take the leap, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of it, you know, like Gina mentioned, the article with Carrie has also just got us excited to reach out to folks that are using some of these strategies and learn how are, how are they being used? What questions do they have? You know, what are they kind of stumbling with? And so the book will also be an opportunity to explain um, more of these strategies more in depth with case studies and things like that. So yeah, we're really excited about it. Well, I'm super excited to hear about it. And for any of our listeners, you can find links to some things that you can read from Gina and Emily. I really encourage you to read them. I think the intersection article is a really nice synopsis of the rare model. So that's a really um, easy, free, accessible one to get. Uh, You don't have to go through your university library or anything. So anyway, it's been really fun speaking with you. Thank you so much for being here. And I know our our listeners are going to really enjoy it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So great to connect with you all. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, here are some important dates that we'll we'll let you know about for assessment coming up. April 5 through the 9, the Higher Learning Commission's annual conference is taking place virtually. The theme is crisis and community, and the keynote speakers include Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Dr. Sarah Lewis. From April 8th through 12th, the American Educational Research Association is having its virtual annual meeting on the theme, Accepting Educational Responsibility. Cool. April 13th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, join AALHE for our monthly Twitter chat. Follow at AALHE.org and use hashtag AALHE chat. It's all one word and you can be part of our chat. So that'd be awesome if you join. Those are always really fun and dynamic conversations too. From April 19th and April 20th, we have the Assessment Network of New York's annual conference, Assessment Refocused, and it's taking place virtually this year. Registration is free, and the keynote speakers include Dr. Joseph Levy and friend of the podcast, Dr. Natasha Jankowski. And last but not least, June 7th through 11th is ALHE's annual conference. The theme is on exemplars, encores, and enigmas. Registration is now open. We have a really great lineup of keynote speakers and sessions, and all AALHE member registrants will receive a complimentary copy of the book, Exemplars in Assessment, which was edited by Dr. Jane Marie Souza and Dr. Tara Rose, two AALHE board members, and profits that the organization gets from this book will be donated to the organization. So it's one really generous thing that that has been been taken place. So thanks to Jane Marie and Tara uh, for that support to the organization. And I think we're hoping to have them on the podcast in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned here. And that's all for this episode of Assessment Works. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in next month for another episode. 
Don't forget to send us your audio files to podcast at alhe.org. We'll see you next month.